Hello, everyone. Curtis here. This is our third in our installments on the history of the black church in America in honor of Black History Month. Before we dive into the next section of the book, which was, if you've forgotten, African-American religious history edited by Milton C. Cernet, I've got a couple of supplemental resources to share with you all. Many of you probably noticed that PBS just put out a four-hour documentary on the black church. I've not gotten around to watching it yet, but I'm hoping to soon. I also came across a podcast from one of my kind of regular podcast listens uh, on this topic as well. They actually interviewed one of the people involved with the PBS documentary. It is the March 4th episode of the 538 Politics podcast. That's the name of the show. And it's an episode titled How the Black Church Has Shaped American Politics. It was an interesting listen if you're interested in a little more focused discussion on the, the political side of this topic. Today, though, we are going to move into the third section of our book, which collects some primary source documents from the post-Civil War through World War I period of the black church. I thought one of the most important things I learned from reading this week was about the simultaneous unity and diversity of the black church. (laughs) That might sound obvious, but the black church is often spoken of as kind of a monolith, as if it were one thing. And that's true so far as it goes, but it can obscure the diversity that's within it as well. As a white person, I have to admit that I tend to think far more easily about the diversity of the historically white denominations rather than their unity, while doing the opposite with the historically black ones. And I think the selections in this book uh, made me think that there is both good reason for that and some limits to that way of thinking. There's good reason for that because the black church does play, or at least has historically played, a more central role in the experience of black Americans than white Americans. One of these selections is an essay by W.E.B. Du Bois titled The Faith of Our Fathers, in which he outlines some of the distinctive characteristics of African-American religion, and then says, and this is a quote from Du Bois, the Negro church today is the social center of Negro life in the United States and the most characteristic expression of African character. He goes on to give an example of a local Baptist church in Virginia, writing, This building is the central clubhouse of a community of a thousand or more Negroes. Various organizations meet here, the church proper, the Sunday school, two or three insurance societies, women's societies, secret societies, and mass meetings of various kinds. Entertainments, suppers, and lectures are held here right beside the five or six regular weekly religious services. Considerable sums of money are collected and expended here. Employment is found for the idle. Strangers are introduced. News is disseminated and charity distributed. At the same time, this social, intellectual, and economic center is a religious center of great power. And then he writes what I think is a fantastically insightful point. Thus, one can see in the Negro church today, reproduced in microcosm, all that great world from which the Negro is cut off by color prejudice and social condition. A proscribed people must have a social center, and that center for this people is the Negro church. White Americans, for whom the whole of society is open, (laughs) have all these different functions spread out across institutions of education, finance, commerce, culture, religion, recreation. Black people had the church. And so the church became the hub of all these different spheres. That is the monolith of the black church. And we can see some of those same characteristics continuing on today, even as more of society at large has been opened up to all. But this is an extremely important point for us to understand about the history of the black church because it shapes so much of what the black church is today and what it has meant for black people in America. 
it is something of a monolith. And it has certain similarities in terms of the functions that it plays in black culture and social life, more or less across the board. But the other main thing I noticed in these selections was the diversity of the black church in this era and the debates that were raging about who and what and how the church should be. There's one piece by Lucius Holsey, who led the colored Methodist Episcopal Church that is an argument for black churches to not be involved in politics but to stick to the pure gospel, so to speak. Others, like the AME churches that we mentioned last time, were strongly opposed to this way of thinking and pejoratively labeled Holsey's churches a bootlick operation and a little slave church because they felt he and his denomination were playing into the hands of racist white people. Friction in church and state cannot be good for God and God's children, Holsey writes, a position very much opposed by many in the black church both then and now. Another piece was by a man named William Wells Brown, who writes of his travels through the South and is dismayed by the way Southern black churches worshipped. In Brown's mind, they seemed far too close to the wildness and paganism of African folk religion, and says of one preacher, quote, he evidently felt that to set a congregation to shouting was the highest point to be attained, and he was equal to the occasion. Revival meetings, he writes, were injurious to health and morals, and he had a strong condemnation for poor, sometimes homeless black folk, using their money to, in his words, ape the whites in the erection of costly structures to worship in. In Brown's opinion, one obviously not shared by the worshipers he criticizes in this essay, the only remedy for this great evil lies in an educated ministry. It is very difficult, however, to induce the uneducated, superstitious masses to receive and support an intelligent Christian clergyman. So, politics or no politics, down-home folksy religion or proper and educated clergy, integration or separation, even, as you may be aware, staying in America or emigrating to Africa, these and many more debates were raging within the black church at the time and have continued in some form or in kind of related topics to this day. And then I finally wanted to share a little from a speech that could have been given today, but was given in April 1906 at Park Street Church in Boston, where I attended for part of my college days, by the way. This is by the then pastor of Charles Street AME Church, Reverdy C. Ransom, and it's entitled The Race Problem in a Christian State, 1906. It begins, there should be no race problem in the Christian state. He goes on to argue that any state like America that has a race problem cannot therefore be a Christian state in any meaningful sense of the word. American Christianity, he says, will unchrist itself if it refuses to strive on until this race problem is not only settled, but settled right. And until this is done, however much men may temporize and seek to compromise and cry peace, peace, there will be no peace until it is done. He goes on to make some of the very same points that you may have seen in recent years about how the wealth and prosperity of the nation has been built upon the slave labor of black people, and that, among other things, full citizenship, including the right to vote, is a necessary first step toward solving the race problem. It's an exceedingly well-done argument for the practical political implications of Jesus and the gospel. And I wanted to close with a long quote from this speech, one that especially with what the Republican Party in Georgia and elsewhere is trying to pull off today, 115 years after Ransom's speech, this is as important to hear today as it was then. He says this, 
A man who advises the Negro to give up his right to the franchise is not a good friend to the Negro, and he is an enemy to his country. This cry that goes up from the South for the suppression of the Negro vote is against the Negro as such, regardless of his character, intelligence, or wealth. These men desire what they have always desired, to have and to hold the Negro in their power, thus obtaining for themselves a disproportionate political influence and power in the councils of the nation, in all that pertains to the enactment of legislation and the administration of law. Not only this, but the Negro is thus rendered helpless and made the defenseless victim an easy prey of any who may desire to prey upon him. The white millions of this nation can never lift themselves up in Christianity and civilization by beating back and trampling underfoot the simple rights and aspirations of 10 million blacks. We know that men cannot be made social equals by legislation. We know also that equality cannot be based upon color any more than it can be based upon the fashion plate. The attitude of the Christian state towards this question should be to seek to lift up all men who are sinking down and to clear the way and throw wide the gates to all peoples who are seeking to climb upward. Reverend Ransom and the black church have consistently reminded us of what is true, the gospel. Following Jesus, it has political implications because justice is something we work towards together. We're going to leave it there for today. Next time, we will look at the black church during the Great Migration up through World War II, and I hope you will join me for that as well. Bye.